tight temperature rises And the meaning is oh so clear One thousand and one yellow daffodils Begin to dance in front of you, oh dear Are they trying to tell you something? You're missing that one final screw You're simply not in the pink, my dear You haven't got a clue I'm going slightly mad I'm going slightly mad Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 118 Where we go back, back to, the, to past the past And read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing you can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and using your hypnotic power, Learned in the Orient. Ooh. Ooh. Today we're going to read something. I'm very excited to present this to you, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mad, number four, from cover date April, May, 1953. Cover drawn by Harvey Kurtzman, written entirely and largely plotted by Harvey Kurtzman, published by EC Comics, and the cover price is ten cents, cheap. Which actually that is cheap. It didn't. It is actually cheap, you know. But that, <laughs> that, that's a gag in later issues of Mad. It would say yeah. the cover always said cheap, but they didn't do that here anyway. No, but before we get to that, we'll talk about EC Comics and the folks behind EC Comics, including Maxwell Charles Gaines. He was born Max Ginsburg in New York City on September 21st, 1894. At age four, he fell out of a window and onto a picket fence, which which badly injured his leg. Uh, this would aggravate him the rest of his life and, uh, if, as you might imagine, made him pretty cranky. Yeah. Uh, he had one son, and that was William Maxwell Bill Gaines. He was born March 1st, 1922, in Brooklyn, New York. Now, according to Bill, his dad had a terrible temper and expected the worst from his son and was rarely disappointed. Uh, he would vent himself on Bill, beating him with a belt while screaming, you'll never amount to anything. So he was a real daddy dearest type of guy. Uh-huh. Gaines had been a teacher, Max Gaines, that is, an elementary school principal, a munitions factory worker, and a haberdasher. And in 1933, he started a new job as a salesperson at Eastern Color Printing. They printed four-color Sunday newspaper comic strips, among other materials. Max figured these comic strips could be repackaged in saddle-stapled, self-covered pamphlets and used as promotional giveaway by some outfit or another. Indeed, one of Eastern Color Printing's clients, Procter & Gamble, was seeking just such a promotional item. But when Max pitched it to him, they skipped out on the idea. Yes, uh, with the blessing of his boss, Harry L. Wildenberg, uh, Max forged ahead and he acquired licenses to reproduce popular strips of the day, such as Mutton Jeff, Joe Palooka, Hairbreath Harry, and Smatter Pop. <laughs> uh, now, with the spring 1933 cover date, Max Gaines produced, uh, through Eastern Color Printing, Funnies on Parade. Now, these are comic strips that have been collected and reprinted before, but uh, never in this uh, approximately 9 by 10 inch saddle stapled format, more like a a comic book. This that is like yeah, this, this is the first time they looked like a comic book. Before this, they would have been in books or like weird little pamphlets themselves. Sure, sure. Uh, this is the first time you get that like true magazine feel. 
where it looks yeah where it looks familiar to to us folks in the uh, yeah. in the far future uh, now now faced with the uh, promotional item that they'd rejected Procter and Gamble figured what the heck and they went through with their offer <laughs> it just just muscled it through on these guys <laughs> sure now funnies on parade was not sold on newsstands uh, instead it was available by, by mail after sending in certain proofs of purchase off of our Procter and Gamble products this pamphlet served another purpose, uh, directly for Eastern color printing. It uh, actually kept the press running for a shift, which is uh, paramount to making offset printing profitable. Uh, we had 10,000 copies of Funnies on Parade were printed. But it proved so popular that Eastern color printing was soon producing similar promotional booklets for Canada Dry soft drinks, Kinney shoes, Wheatina cereal, Phillips Dental Magnesia, and John Wanamaker department stores, and others. Wouldn't you like to send in some uh, proofs of purchase so, from Phillips from Wanamaker Dental <laughs> Magnesia? You know, it's like not only do we know you like comics, we know that you have bad uh, teeth. That's so, true. <laughs> print runs of these ballooned up to 100,000 copies, then 250,000 copies of these reprinted strips. Uh, later in 1933, Gaines collaborated with Dell Publishing to publish the 36-page one-shot Famous Funnies, colon, A Carnival of Comics. This was followed in 1934 by Famous Funnies, which ran for 218 issues and is considered the first true American comic book. Eventually, the supply of comic strips they were reprinting dried up, and in 1938, Gaines and former accountant for the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, Jack Leibowitz, began publishing comics with the original material under the name All American Publications. At the time, Leibowitz was the co-owner with Harry Donenfeld of National Allied Publications, a.k.a. DC Comics Today, and Harry bankrolled Max Gaines' new comic book venture. All American Publications, whose covers often bore the DC logo for distribution purposes, brought forth such Golden Age characters as the Atom, the Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, as well as William Moulton Marsden's Wonder Woman in All-Star Comics number 8, that was October 1941 cover date. They also participated in the first intercompany crossover with National Allied when uh, creating the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics number 1, uh, June 1940 cover date. Though, as you can see, it was more like a collaboration between cousins than competitors. Yeah, they it was were like kissing the, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Keep it in the uh, <laughs> Now, Gaines' relationship with National Allied had its highs and lows over the years, and, in Gaines, and Gaines sold his share of the company to Leibowitz, keeping only picture stories from the Bible as the foundation of his own new company, and that was Educational Comics, or EC. Uh, Gerard Jones writes in uh, Men of Tomorrow from Hatchet Book Group, uh, 2008. He says, Gaines saw the end of the superhero fad coming and wanted to get into something more durable, like children's books and magazines. In 1944, he decided he'd had enough. He let Jack Leibowitz buy him out of the lo buy him out with a loan from Harry. Uh, Leibowitz uh, promptly orchestrated the merger of All American Comics and Detective Comics International Comics, uh, of which he was the junior partner, vice president, and publisher. Next, he took charge of, of organizi uh, organizing National Comics, Independent News, and their affiliated firms into a single corporate entity. That's going to be National Periodical Publications. Right. So with this move, they they essentially. Posited DC as the they king planted of, the foundation of, yeah, yeah. Of, of comics right there. I mean, they they just ran the show uh, from that point for, as we know, a couple of decades. But I think what's interesting about this point here is also uh, sometimes Max Gaines is is 
you know, they look at him like some kind of moral crusader. You yeah. know, like he couldn't he couldn't take doing the comics anymore, and that's why he had to go Bible stories, do Bible and, stories. Yeah. And it, I don't think that's totally true. I think it was also a business decision. You know, superhero, oh, absolutely, superhero comics. Yeah, they were on the wane. He saw that, and he was like, you know, there's always going to be kids reading kids' books, so mm-hmm. let's make those. But uh, you know, there was maybe a little bit from each was going on there. So EC Comics continued all Americans' picture stories from the Bible and added new titles such as picture stories from American history. Gaines soon expanded the line with humor and funny animal books such as Land of the Lost, Animal Fables, and Ed Whelan's Fat and Slat. And this is also a good point to, to support what we're saying about Gaines. Over time, some covers insignia which were changed so that the EC logo stood for entertaining comics, like on the animal ones. Uh, this was not a change that was instituted later. It's been wrongly stated that Bill Gaines changed the name. But Made the change, yeah. They were, they were already using it uh, for certain titles. So, um, yeah, he, it wasn't like this was. It had become like, uh, you know, Episcopalian publishing or something like that. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't that way. Uh, uh, Max Gaines died during a boating accident on August 20th, 1947 at Lake, Pla- Lake Placid, New York. His Gaines, his friend Sam Irwin, and the latter's eight-year-old son, William Irwin, were aboard a motorboat when it was struck by another boat. Gaines and the elder Irwin died in the accident. It might be somewhat telling that Max's actual son, Bill Gaines, was not out with them. Mm. Now, it's not like Bill Gaines was doing nothing. Uh, As World War II began, Bill Gaines was rejected by the United States Army, the United States Coast Guard, and the United States Navy. So uh, he went to his draft board and requested to be drafted. Uh, He trained as an Army Air Corps photographer at Lowry Field in Denver, Colorado. He was sent to Oklahoma Field, which did not have a, a photographic facility, so he wound up on permanent KP, or Kitchen Patrol, duty. As Bill told the Army magazine Stars and Stripes in 1976, being an eater, this assignment was a real pleasure for me. Uh, There were four of us, and we always found all the choice bits the cooks had hidden away. We'd be frying up filet mignon and ham steaks every night. The hours were great, too. I think it was eight hours on and 40 (laughs) hours. Can't beat it. Really? (laughs) The Army life's for me, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Gaines was stationed at Derrida Army Airfield in Louisiana, also at Marshall Marshall Field in Kansas, and then at Governors Island, New York. I got to say, I don't think I've ever heard of a person that tried that hard and succeeded to getting into the Army. To get into the Army, yeah. yeah, This is a man, he he was dedicated. Uh, mm-hmm. Bill left the service in 1946 and returned home to, contempl- to complete his chemistry studies at Brooklyn Polytech. He soon transferred to New York University, intent on obtaining a teaching certificate in order to achieve his dream of being a high school science teacher. In 1947, Bill Gaines was 25 years old and in his senior year at NYU when he found out his father had died in that boating accident. At the behest of his mother, Bill gave up his pursuit to teach and took over the family business EC Comics. And then he met a certain gentleman by the name of Albert Bernard Feldstein, who was born October 24th, 1925, in Brooklyn, New York. Al Feldstein entered the comics world while still in high school, hired around 1942 to work for S.M. Iger's comic book packaging studio, although by his own account it was mainly sweeping up and things like that. Mm. After graduating from high school, he attended the Art Students League and picked up plenty of work freelancing for a robust World War II-era comic book industry. In 1948, he took his portfolio into the downtown offices of EC Comics and spoke with the publisher, Bill Gaines, uh, a man three years his senior. Feldstein began as an artist, but he soon combined art with writing and then eventually editing most of the uh, EC titles. 
Although he originally wrote and illustrated approximately one story per comic, in addition to doing many covers, Feldstein finally focused on editing and writing. From late 1950 through 53, he edited and wrote stories for seven EC titles. And those titles were part of the uh, new trend of comic books, uh, concocted by Bill Gaines and Feldstein, which uh, took this company in a radical new direction. It was beginning in 1949, EC began publishing true crime, then straight-up horror and science fiction books. This is at a time that superheroes were especially becoming unpopular. Max Gaines was right when he saw they were on the wane. And a lot of comics publishers were really just trying anything at the point to justify rack space. You had your Westerns, Army, you had your Romance, pretty much anything. You know, but I, superheroes. What's his, yeah, anything but superheroes. I think, uh, what's his name, Frank Sinatra had a comic or something. It was crazy. So uh, <laughs> these titles were The Crypt of Terror from EC. Uh, that changed the tales from the crypt, two issues into the run. The Vault of Horror. The Haunt of Fear, Weird Fantasy, Weird Science, and Chris and Art, my favorite, Crime Suspense Stories, and Shock Suspense Stories. Uh, <laughs> suspense Stories is one word. One word, yes. Uh, these comics were produced by some of the best available talent in the business, such names as Johnny Craig, Reed Crandall, Jack Davis, Will Elder, George Evans, Frank Frazetta, Graham Ingalls, Jack Kamen, Bernard Krigstein, Joe Orlando, John Severin, Al Williamson, Basil Wolverton, and Wally Wood. And he also employed such writers as Robert Bernstein, Otto Binder, Daniel Keyes, Jack Olek, and Carl Wessler. And Feldstein published the first published work of Harlan Ellison. How about that? Wow. Now, these were not the first horror comics, incidentally. Uh, the very first is usually regarded as Avon Comics' Eerie Number 1 that had a January 1947 cover date. And when EC started their new trend line, American Comics was already publishing American Comics' Adventures into the Unknown. And that ran 174 issues from fall 1948 to August 1967 cover. Now, EC comics were of a higher printing and art quality, however, and the stories were demonstrably better, each containing a twist at the end that sometimes would actually catch people off guard in those naive, pre-cynical days. Yeah, <laughs> they won't get you now, but those no, comics no, are part of the reason they won't get you, because it's, it's been done true. before, yeah. Now, these horror comics sold very well, but EC was also known for its stock, high-quality, if sporadically published, war comics, such as Two-Fisted Tales and Frontline Com Combat. Uh, these would be handled by Harvey Kurtzman, a fellow who was born October 3rd, 1924, in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, his father died of a bleeding ulcer when he was four, and that put the family in dire straits. He lived with his brother at an orphanage for three months while his mother secured employment. Several months later, she remarried to Russian-Jewish immigrant Abraham Perkis, who worked in the printing industry as a brass engraver. They had another son together, and Abraham moved the family at, uh, five to the Bronx in 1934. They weren't wealthy, but they didn't struggle too badly, even during the Great Depression uh, in the 1930s. Perkis had socialist leanings and encouraged Harvey's artistic pursuits from a young age. Harvey was a voracious fan of comic strips, searching through neighbors' garbage for the comics not included in his parents' newspaper, The Daily Worker. Hmm. At the ripe old age of 14, Kurtzman won a cartooning contest, for which he received a dollar, and he had his cartoon published in Tip Top Comics number 36, April 1939 cover date. After winning the annual John Wanamaker Art Contest, Kurtzman received a scholarship to attend high school at the High School of Music and Art. While there, he would meet, among other colleagues, 
Bill Elder, with whom he would have a lasting friendship and professional relationship, and we'll talk more about Bill later this episode. Yeah. In 1942, Harvey got his first break in the comics industry at Lewis Verstad Studio, uh, which produced comics for Quality, Ace, Gilberton, and, of course, The Daily Worker. Uh, his, uh, his first published work there was assisting on issue number five of uh, Gilberton's classic comics. That was September 1942 cover date. Kurtzman was drafted in 1943 for service in World War II. He trained for the infantry, but Harvey never went overseas. Instead, he was stationed in Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas. Primarily drawing posters and signs and contributing comics to military newspapers. They must have seen him doodling, and that was it. Sure. After his discharge following the war, Kurtzman found competition fierce in the comics industry as freelancing replaced the system of packaging shops. Stan Lee offered Kurtzman, that's right, the Stan Lee offered Kurtzman low-paying work doing one-page fillers for Timely, and they named the strip Hey Look. He produced 150 of these one-page strips from 1946 until 1949. In 1947, Harvey partnered with Charles Stern and Bill Elder to open the Charles William Harvey Studio. Essentially, they split the bill on some workspace. Uh, they would close in 1952, but uh, remember, this studio uh, will be visiting a, a few times during the episode, so keep them in mind. Yeah. Um, at an art and music reunion in early 1946, Kurtzman would meet Adele Hassan, uh, who was one of only two female staff members at Timely and uh, was dating Will Elder. Adela would develop a crush on Harvey, and later that year, when she was assigned to sort through the entries for a, a contest Timely ran called Now You Can Be the Editor, uh, she uh, stuffed the ballot box in Kurtzman's <laughs> favor. Uh, this would prompt Stanley to assign Kurtzman more work, which necessitated him coming around the Timely offices more frequently, which gave him more opportunities to flirt with the secretary that he'd already met, Adele Hassan. Mm. Uh, Stands to reason they'd uh, they'd uh, hit it off, you know, and, and they would wind up getting married uh, in September 1940. That is a pretty clever uh, woman there, that Adele. Let me mm -hmm. tell you, and all and all by fixing an election. So uh, <laughs> Kurtzman <laughs> continued to do freelance work until late 1948, when he picked up a copy of Lev Gleason's publications, True Crime Comic Book, Crime Does Not Pay. Kurtzman felt the same excitement that he felt about the underground comic books of 20 years later, he said in an interview, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves now. After a little back and forth with Bill Gaines, Kurtzman finally got his foot in the door at EC Comics in 1950 and contributed some artwork for their new trend line of titles. That year, Kurtzman pitched a war title in the vein of adventure strips like Roy Crane's Captain Easy. Gaines let him, let him debut the bi-monthly series Two-Fisted Tales with a November-December 1950 cover date. It was not quite the jovial adventure book that Kurtzman promised, <laughs> but a stark look at the soul-crushing realities of war. Kurtzman's approach to the book was very different as well. While Feldstein allowed his artists to draw pages as they wished, Kurtzman provided detailed layouts that he expected to be followed explicitly. He wrote virtually everything but the one-page text stories needed to retain the postal rate. Kurtzman was also fanatical that all details be accurate and uh, blew through a lot of his own salary cleaning out Army-Navy stores of surplus uh, reference materials. A single eight-page story could take days and days of research to ensure its truthfulness, something we sure wouldn't know anything about, huh? No, we don't know anything about <laughs> spending days and days on research, you know. Yeah, a couple of hours of research for about three minutes of uh, audio. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's exactly right. <laughs> no 
Now, this book was well-received, and Gaines gave Kurtzman another war book. This was Frontline Combat, and this debuted with a July-August 1951 cover date. It was also bi-monthly and would come out opposite of Two-Fisted Tales, so it essentially doubled Harvey's workload. Yeah, he was so meticulous, he just basically applied the same thing to the second one and, you know, just sure. more hours. So Har- Harvey still wasn't making a whole lot of money, especially for the amount of time he was putting in. Uh, so that where Feldstein took generally about a week to complete each ed- issue that he edited, Kurtzman took approximately a month. And that's the story of EC Comics' new trend line. What about Mad? What about what? Mad Magazine, you know, the, the publication this entire episode is supposed to be about? Oh, <laughs> Uh, that's right, I forgot. Uh, mm. So, Harvey wasn't making nearly the money that Al Feldstein did, who was pumping out three times as many titles. As we said, he was doing all seven of the other books. Uh, and truth be told, uh, Harvey also detested the horror content of the books Feldstein was producing, which consistently outsold his own work. Harvey felt his war comics were in contrast to the chauvinistic army and horror books that were popular at the time, and truthfully, they were. Uh, and thought that those comics did contribute to juvenile delinquency. So, <laughs> go figure. That was actually a prevailing sentiment. That was not just mm-hmm. uh, outside comics. Absolutely. Now, remembering Kurtzman's humor work on Hey Look from the 40s, Gaines suggested that Kurtzman helm a humor magazine, which would require less meticulous research and therefore be faster to produce. And he created Mad Magazine. Or Mad, actually. Mad number one. Mm-hmm. October, ni- uh, October, November 1952. This was entirely written by Kurtzman with artwork by himself, Wally Wood, Will Elder, Jack Davis, and John Severin. Uh, They would remain the primary contributors for this run on the book. Uh, The debut issue and the second one sold poorly, and while sales picked up a bit for issue three, they weren't exceptional. That is until Mad Number 4, the one we're going to discuss today. It had an April-May 1953 uh, cover date. The full title is Tales Calculated to Drive You Mad. Uh, along the spine is a red bar, and humor in a jugular vein was set vertically. Yeah, very silly. Uh, the cover is drawn by Kurtzman and depicts a red-headed woman walking down the street with a short guy in a cloak and hat. The character is a stylized version of The Shadow, a character we'll learn about and we'll see more about this later on. Mm-hmm. He was later repurposed for Marvel Comics' mad ripoff magazine, Crazy, and named Irving Nebish. So that's something. Various methods of destruction plague the red-haired woman while she strolls blithely along. There's an open manhole before her, a spike trap below. And before the manhole, there's a tension trigger attached to a bundle of dynamite. A lit bomb rolls out from under a fence. Also, a spear and a stick with a snake on it uh, produced from the fence. Uh, It looks like there's a cannon aimed right at the woman from over said fence. Uh, A jagged knife is thrown at the woman from somewhere unseen. A gun is rigged up to a nearby telephone pole with a tripwire attached to the trigger. A truck careened toward the woman in the background. A safe is falling from overhead, and a noose dangles in front of the safe. Still, the woman seems unbothered by all this. Yeah, she says, Kill me? Don't be absurd. What makes you think anyone wants to kill me? <laughs> now, Kurtzman would sign this cover H. Kurtz, uh, and then a figure of a man to uh, complete his name. Yeah, that because, wasn't you know, his... Kurtz man. It, yeah. it's, 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 it's quite cute, and he used it a lot, but he, he didn't use it all the time. One, one of the no, weird things yeah. about him is he didn't have the same signature every time. It was like whatever he felt like using, so uh, you can collect them all, I guess. <laughs> uh, now, beginning the comic, 
Hero Worship Department. Faster than a speeding bullet. Kapwing! More powerful than a locomotive. Chugga, 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 chugga. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Boing, swoosh! Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Super Duper Man! Yes, with art by Wally Wood. Uh, a quick note, all of the bios in this episode, except for Harvey Kurtzman's, have uh, been severely truncated for time. Uh, any of the guys who did the art in this issue could and probably will get a full episode bio to themselves down the line. Very, very accomplished folks here. Absolutely. But uh, let's start with uh, with Wally Wood. Here is born Wallace Allen Wood on uh, June 17th, 1927 in Manha- Manag- Managa, Minnesota? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now, Wood <laughs> said that his dream at age six is about finding a magic pencil that could draw anything. Wood would graduate from high school in 1944, and he enlisted in post-World War II U.S. Army's 11th Airborne Division in 1946. He'd be stationed in occupied Japan. After his discharge in 1948, Wally moved to New York City with his mother and younger brother, where Wally's, uh, Wally first worked as a busboy at Bickford's Restaurant. In his spare time, he hauled his portfolio around Midtown Manhattan, looking for work. In the waiting room of a publisher that would reject them both, Wood met John Severin, who took him back to the Charles William Harvey studio. There, Wally met Charles Stern, Bill Elder, and Harvey Kurtzman, the guys that owned the place. <laughs> From there, he got a tip about Will Eisner needing an artist to ink backgrounds for the spirit. He headed over to Eisner's studio and was hired on the spot. Things snowballed for Wally from there, and he drew several strips for Fox Features. He was, assi- he was an assistant to Terry the Pirate's artist, George Wonder, for a time. Wood began at EC co-penciling and co-inking with Harry Harrison, the story Too Busy for Love in Modern Love No. 5, February 1950, cover date, and fully penciling the lead story I Was Just a Playtime Cowgirl in Saddle Romances No. 11, April 1950, cover that was inked by Harrison. And just a few years later, he drew and inked this gem Super Duper Man in the book. So the opening panel depicts Super Duper Man having burst through a wall to punch an elderly man in the stomach. (laughs) <laughs> On Super Duper Man's chest is the good house, housekeeping seal of approval. The man is punched so hard he flies off his crutches and spits his dentures out. Now, surrounding them is a large crowd of cheering onlookers and also a buxom brunette. This is Lois Payne. Uh, she's the Daily Dirt's star reporter. We'll get to her uh, in a minute, yeah. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> there are a lot of build, billboards and posters to be read also in the background. Uh, one is an advertisement for Wally Wood himself, and it reads, When better drawer rings are drawn, they'll be drawn by Wood. <laughs> He's real gone. There's also a stack of pages tacked to the wall that read, Post no bills, which is a real common gag in this here uh, comic book. And uh, one of those p- pages reads, Mad is crazy, man. <laughs> in the far background are billboards advertising super products, pre- presumably a commentary on the commercialization and marketing of Superman. We've got uh, drink super cola, smoke super, eat super, chew super, super crunchies, and new super soap. A biplane in the sky has written super, but another biplane pulls a banner reading, EC for me, see? <laughs> now, the opening begins on a wide shot of the Daily Dirt building, which uh, pierces the cloud cover and has what looks like a planet with three rings around it at the top. Uh, when we zoom in through a window, we see a disheveled, perpetually quaffing man in glasses holding a spittoon. 
Our story begins high up in the offices of that fighting newspaper, The Daily Dirt. An incredibly miserable and emaciated-looking figure shuffles from spittoon to spittoon. For this is the assistant to the copyboy, Clark Bent, who is, in reality, Super Duper Man. Now, Clark's office, if we can call it that, looks like a wreck, uh, and the walls are plastered with motivational phrases such as, Do it now! And think! <laughs> Procrastination is the thief of time, and virtue is its own reward. <laughs> An American paper for Americans. Also, don't spit, and no smoking. And, of course... Post no bills, the uh, good old gag. Crumpled in the corner is a newspaper whose headline reads, Man Bites Dog. Uh, the phrase Man Bites Dog is a shortened version of an aphorism in journalism, which implies that an article about something unlikely and new will get more traction than reporting on an everyday occurrence with the similar outcome, an expected outcome. Uh, a similar quote about journalism is, you never read about a plane that did not crash. The phrase was coined by Alfred Harmsworth, first Viscount Northcliffe, a British newspaper magnate, the full quote being, When a dog bites a man, that is not news, because it happens so often. But if a man bites a dog, that is news. Now, Clark Kent has shifted his glasses so he can use his x-ray vision on the next room. Clark says, Little do those ladies in the powder room across the hall know that I am in reality super duper man, faster than a speeding bullet, kapwee with a little all X-ray vision. Clark is now near a mop which leans against boxes labeled super soap and super chlorophyll. Uh, in the foreground is a sagging Humphrey Bogart-looking reporter at his typewriter. His uh, nameplate is reading. Uh, his nameplate reads West Bank Piglet. I don't know what that's a reference to. We could, you? We could not figure it out. I, uh, no. Anybody knows, please let us know. West Bank Piglet. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I, I assume it's a play on something. I really I tried a lot of different ways to look yeah. for it. I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> now, uh, hearing someone holler, assistant copy boy has Clark running while coughing, saluting with one hand and holding a precarious stack of five spittoons in the other. Coming, sir. I'm the double, sir. Clark Bent, assistant to the copy boy. All present and accounted for, sir. Behind Clark is some graffiti on the wall that reads Al Hart Words. Uh, this is probably a reference to EC editor Al Feldstein's propensity to overwrite his comics, leaving little room in panels for, you know, the artist to oh, do yeah. the art. You got to, when you see these things, especially later on, like by the 53 or 54, it's like <laughs> these guys get about an inch across on a thing. Uh, Clark's boss is a little redheaded guy that looks like a turn of the 20th century newsboy. And yes. we mean little, he can't be more than two feet tall. Clark's boss gives him a little slap, which sends Clark and his stack of spittoons flying. Yeah, the copy boy goes, Bless it all, man. How many times have I told you to salute with your raw hand? The boss continues slapping Clark around while he admonishes him. Sorry, you miserable old wretch. Lost me temper. Copy boy, work does things to a man. Come on, snap to. Come on, boy. I'll tell you why I called you, old man. It's payroll time. Here are your week's wages. 75 cents and a good bus token. Spend it wisely. Dismissed. Clark is thrilled because after having saved for 10 years, he has enough to make a down payment for the object of his affection, girl reporter Lois Lane. Now, Clark runs down a hall to the managing editor's office to give her the necklace. Uh, he's carrying a mop and also wears a spittoon on his head. Well, here I am with the pearl necklace. Lois says I'm a creep. <laughs> boy, if she knew my real identity, boy, she wouldn't call me a creep. Oop. There's Lois at a big meeting with the managing editor. 
Inside the editor's office, the entire staff is crowded around the managing editor's desk, whose nameplate reads W. Twitchell, uh, doubtlessly a reference to Walter Winchell, a famous gossip columnist and journalist during the 30s and 40s. Uh, Lois Payne is one of the only characters rendered in color. Twitchell says, Listen, gang, a big story's about to break. The unknown monster has been terrorizing Cosmopolis for months, and the police are helpless. This morning, the DA got a letter from the unknown monster. The unknown monster has announced when and where he will strike. The story is hot, boy. Hot! Hot! I want you to go out there, gang! I want you to fight! I want you to die for that good old daily dirt, gang! Now get that story, gang! At this, all the reporters in the room scramble and hustle out the door, except for Lois Payne, who just sits there idly. Uh, a voice comes from the wastebasket. Lois! It's Clark Bent emerging from the trash can. <laughs> Lois replies with, What do you want, you incredibly wretched old creep? Please, please don't chase me, please. I got a present for you, please. Please? Huh? Please? Clark hands Lois the gift, the pearl necklace. And she bites into it to check for <laughs> authenticity. <laughs> Yawn, another pearl necklace? What'd it set you back, creep? Please, please, I spent my life savings, please. Thanks, creep. Now go away, boy, you bother me. Please, can, can I stand here and smell your perfume for a minute, please? Please. He is a creep. Um, now, Lois t uh, Clark takes Lois's hand to get a big whiff. But she slaps him away and walks out of the office. Two sniffs is enough. Now get out of my way, boy. I've got to go and get the story on the unknown monster for the good old Daily Dirt. Please. Please. <sighs> creep. On the wall of Twitchell's office are a bunch of posters and bills, including an ad for a radio show, Here's Super Snooper on WXYZ, sponsored by Super Duper Mutual of Superior. <laughs> and a, another page reads, If it's true, it's libel. Now alone, uh, Clark is free to become who he truly is, Super Duper Man. Ha! Boy! She, well, she should only know I'm more powerful than a locomotive. Chugga, 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 chugga! <laughs> Clark runs into a telephone booth to change clothes. The unknown monster, eh? This is a job for Super Duper Man. I'll go just go in this phone booth and change into my costume. Ah! Uh, the booth is obviously occupied. Mm -hmm. Clark bounds out of the phone booth in his shirt and underwear, carrying the rest of his clothes. So he took off his jacket and pants before he noticed that there's a woman using the phone in the I mean, really, she, she must have been a very small woman. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> Drat, phone, fool phone booth is occupied. This assistant copy boy routine is killing my old x-ray vision. Clark dives into another phone booth, which has a long line of people waiting to make a call. And, uh, yes, this used to actually happen. That's You'd have right. to wait for the phone to become unoccupied. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as he disrobes, Clark tosses his clothing outside the booth, creating a gigantic pile of laundry. Oh, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's another phone booth. Now I'll just take off my shirt, sweater, undershirt, knickers, T-shirt, vest, Swim trunks, brush my teeth, wash my feet, and stand revealed as... Complete with logo. Super Duper Man. Now to the window, onto the sill, up, up, and away. Super Duper Man jumps out the window and plummets to the ground below. Of course. 
Yeah, you know, Clark, uh, Clark Kent ducking into a telephone booth to change into Superman is one of those, uh, one of the best-known, you know, tropes of the character. Yet it has rarely been seen in the comic books, uh, and, and didn't begin there. Yeah. Uh, the first time this happened was in the Fleischer Brothers cartoon short, The Mechanical Monsters. This was directed by Dave Fleischer in 1941. In this scene, he steps into a phone booth to call the Daily Planet with news of a robbery. And while he's there, he changes into his Superman duds. Uh, we see this costume switch in silhouette uh, through the phone booth windows. Now, at the uh, proposed scene of the crime, Twitchell and Lois are there with a bunch of reporters surrounding a locked safe that reads Super Acme. Twitchell says, Okay, gang, there's the safe the unknown monster said he's going to rob in just five minutes. I want you all to stay here and get his story while I go back and watch the newspaper office. Suddenly, through the window, they see something. One of the reporters says, Look, up there in the sky. Another reporter goes, It's a bird! Another says, It's a plane! And we see a uh, red bird flap by the window. It's a bird! Yeah. Uh, Super Duper Man then crashes through the wall behind the reporters, uh, regardless. Uh, he poses mightily in front of Lois. Relax, boys. Everything is going to be all right. Super Duper Man is here. Y'all can go home now. You too, Lois. Ha, pain! <laughs> a two-foot-tall blonde boy in green sports coat holding a camera almost as big as he is stands before Super Duper Man. Hey, you, Billy Spafford, boy reporter. Didn't you hear me, boy? You can go home. Amscray, agitate the gravel, hit the road, strike the pavement, get it? To which Billy says, Shazoom! And a bolt of lightning strikes Billy Spafford where he stands, reading the abilities it's imparting to the boy. That's... S for strength, H for health, A for aptitude, Z for zeal, O for ox, power of, O for ox, power of another, M for money. Super Duper Man says, Shazoom? Was is that Shazoom? With a snap, crackle, and pop, Billy is replaced by the red costume-wearing larger superhero, Captain Marbles. Uh, we'll give you one guess on who this character is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his chest has a big American dollar sign on it. What happened to Billy Speffen, boy reporter? He has been replaced by me, Captain Marbles. I am the unknown monster. Super Duper Man flies at Captain Marbles with a right hook. But it lands with a clank and has no effect on Captain Marbles. Pasta Fazula, I gave him a blow hard enough to slay a thousand elephants. Ho oh, hum, did you feel a breeze just then? Just remember, Super Doodle Man, I am, as, I am as invincible as thou. While Captain Marbles tells of his origin, Super Duper Man sneaks up behind him, carrying the locked safe. Well, live and let live, I always say. Just don't pay any attention to me, old man. Let it here. Listen, Super Dupe, come on off your high horse. La Titi, I think I'll lift this safe up here. Got to keep it in shape. La you. Take a tip from me. I was like you once, knocking myself out to fight crime. Lilu, just stand right there. Hum, hum, my buddy, my buddy. Ha! And then Superman smashes the safe over Captain Marvel's head, which has no effect. No. One day, I was while I was punching my way through a mountain... A Captain Marble stoops to pick up the cash released from the broken safe as he keeps talking. 
punching my way through this mountain to capture a gang of international jewel thieves. Suddenly it hit me. Why am I punching my way through this mountain? Now Super Duper Man is tipping an apartment building over onto Captain Marbles. I've got talent. Not everyone can punch their way through a mountain, especially with their head. Just keep standing right there. Nobody quite so I true. The building falls right on Captain Marbles, but he's still unharmed. In fact, he's there sitting happily, just counting a stack of bills. He sure is. So what I, What was I doing punching my way through a mountain? Do I get pay? Time and a half for overtime? What about expenses for uniforms? Cleaning and pressing? What about band-aids? To say nothing of taking people out to lunches? To heck with this Captain Marbles gimmick. The only important thing to do... Old... <laughs> <laughs> the only important thing is the good of old Do-Re-Mi. Lettuce, kale, shekels, get it? Cash! Super Duper Man begins dancing around Captain Marbles, taunting him into a fight. Captain Marbles swings, but Superman, Super Duper Man ducks, and uh, Captain Marbles takes out a chunk of a brick building with his fist. Super Duper Man taunts him again, but dives away when Captain Marbles flies at him with both fists extended. Another corner of the building is destroyed. Then Super Duper Man stands right before him, heckling Captain Marbles. Captain Marbles winds up for a right hook, but Super Duper Man ducks as at the last second, forcing Captain Marbles to punch himself and completely cave in his own face. <laughs> now a crowd is gathered around this scene. Captain Marbles has been destroyed by the only force as strong as he. He! <laughs> when he said he knocked him, he was knocking himself out. He didn't know the half of it. Super Duper Man wins again. Kapwing! Captain Marbles is encased in a large carbon block, now being hoisted away by a crane. Super Duper Man catches up with Lois Payne, and he flexes his bicep to get her attention. And as for you, <laughs> Lois Payne, girl reporter, it just so happens my true identity is Clark Bent. Man assistant to the copy boy. What a burner on you, huh? Ha! And I suppose now you'd give your bottom dollar for me to sniff your perfume, I suppose-n't. Super Duper Man grabs Lois's arm and prepares for a nice sniff. Where's that old bottom dollar? Hands off! She knocks Super Duper Man for a loop and walks away, up to a stoop and into some building nearby. So you're Super Duper Man instead of Clark Bent. Big deal. You're still a creep. And the end is a reverse shot of the opening, beginning on Clark Bent coughing and handling spittoons, then a pan out the window and onto the stately dirt, Daily Dirt building. Caption reads, Up in the fighting, fighting newspaper office of the Daily Dirt, going from spittoon to spittoon, shuffles an incredibly wretched and miserable-looking creep, Clark Bent, assistant copy boy, who is, in reality, Super Duper Man. So what does it all prove? It proves, once a creep... Always a creep. Truer words have never been said. So there's a moral lesson, and that's the important yes, thing we about all that learn story. Something here. Yeah. <laughs> but that is not the only story oh. in Mad Number Four. We've got a couple more. We got a few more. Uh, the first one is Flob was a slob. This one had art by Jack Davis. He was born John Burton Davis on December 2nd, 1924 in Atlanta, Georgia. As a child, Jack would listen to Bob Hope on the radio and try to draw him, despite never actually having seen his image. <laughs> just, by, just by sound <laughs> alone. I like that. I like yep. that. I'd love to see those. Yep. 
Now, uh, Jack was first published in Tip Top Comics number 9, December 1936, cover date. He was 12 years old, and this was part of a reader submission. After high school, he joined the U.S. Navy, where he contributed to one of their periodicals, that would be Navy News. Attending the University of Georgia on the GI Bill, he drew for the campus newspaper and helped launch an off-campus humor publication called Bullsheet. Very clever. Mm-hmm. After graduation, he was a cartoonist intern at the Atlanta Journal, where he, and he worked one summer inking Ed Dodd's Mark Trail comic strip. In 1949, he illustrated a Coca-Cola training manual, a job that gave him enough money to buy a car and drive to New York. There, he found work as an inker on Leslie Charteris's, Charteris's The Sate comic strip, drawn by Mike Roy in 1949-50. to 50. After rejections from several comic book publishers, he began freelancing for William Gaines' EC Comics in 1950. Jack Davis explained to the Wall Street Journal in 2011, I was about ready to give up, go home to Georgia, and be either a forest ranger or a farmer. But I went down to Canal Street in Lafayette, up in an old Ricky elevator, and through a glass door to entertaining comics, where Al Feldstein and Bill Gaines were putting out horror comic books. They looked at my work, and it was horrible, and they gave me a job right away. (laughs) And he did so well that he drew this bit for Mad 4 a few years later. Yes, now this story is about Ramona Snarfel, uh, who had to choose between two men. One is a debonair zoot-suit-wearing criminal named Raxaw Him, or Raxtraw Him, mm. um, and one more slovenly, gross-looking fellow named Sheldon Flob. Uh, Sheldon Flob loves Ramona and catching butterflies, which usually results in him snagging her head in a butterfly net. Uh, also, uh, Sheldon Flob is a slob. That's right. It's part of the part of the title, folks. So yeah. it should be clear. Uh, one day, Sheldon slags rough and tumble Rackstraw him in his net, so Rackstraw slaps him away. Then he grabs Ramona and slaps her a little. She likes this rough, forceful fellow and makes out with him immediately, even as Rackstraw resists and eventually takes off on a scooter. <laughs> Sheldon tries to pry them apart, but the poor guy is ineffective. And, he, and he's really slapping her. Around. He really is slapping her. Yeah, it's like this is it's like smack, smack, smack. He just yep. it's really crazy. Now one Saturday, Sheldon takes Ramona out dancing. She says, "When Sheldon danced, he stepped on my hands." <laughs> Rackstraw is there, and he cuts in on Sheldon and Ramona's dance with a flap, a flap, what, a flap. Yes, it says a flap, flap but it's a slap. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> to Sheldon's face. He sweeps Ramona off her feet, literally, with a broom. Uh, Rackstraw dances with Ramona in a comically violent way, throwing her up in the air, way up in the air, and then letting her fall on her face. Uh, he's still slapping Sheldon around as he goes. By yeah, the way. but she falls because he basically he gets distracted by slapping. By slapping, that's Sheldon. the problem. <laughs> so later, Rackstraw is taking Ramona back to his pad. He runs over Sheldon with his motorcycle, Sheldon sadly holding a crumpled butterfly. <laughs> Rackstraw brings Ramona into the wild nightlife after that. This includes casinos, the theater, cocktail parties, yachting trips, nightclubs, and a thinly veiled allusion to SEX. We see all this unfold. Sheldon is hiding in, uh, he's in every panel, sadly watching, sometimes more obvious than others. One day, Ramona takes Rackstraw to the bank and waits outside while he does his business. Then he comes running out, firing a handgun with a valise full of cash. Later, she takes him to meet some neighborhood kids to whom he sells funny cigarettes called reefers. And, uh, no, we're not making this up. That's that's all Uh, folks. Yes. Now, when a cop shows up, they split the scene. But Ramona begins to get suspicious when Rackstraw has her drive him around with other women in the back seat, <laughs> even sending her back to this wheel when she tries to join in. Eventually, Rackstraw tosses Ramona out in the cold, leaving her planted headfirst in a snowbank. There, she sees Sheldon waiting for her under a streetlight. The two run to each other romantically and embrace. But later, 
she decides to sell reefers to the kids herself and says, Yahoo, it's the nightclubs for me. <laughs> uh, the third story in this, and by the way, there are two tech stories, but as per Cosmic Treadmill policy and human being policy, mm-hmm. we don't read those. No, no, no. So, no, no. <laughs> Robin Hood, this one has art by John Severin. He was born John Powers Severin on December 26, 1921, in Jersey City, New Jersey. By the time he was a teenager, the family moved to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. While attending the High School of Music and Art, along with Harvey Kurtzman, he contributed cartoons to the Hobo News, receiving payment of $1 per cartoon. Hobo News was an early 20th century newspaper for homeless migrant workers, or hobos, published by the International Brotherhood Welfare Association. In 1999, John Severin told the Comics Journal, I was sometimes selling 19 or 20 of them a week. Not every week, naturally, but I didn't have to get a regular job to carry me through high school. It was almost every week. Not every week, but almost every week. I didn't have to get a job. I hated to work, I tell you. I didn't have to get a job then because I was in high school. But after graduating from high school in 1940, he worked as an apprentice machinist and then enlisted in the Army, serving in the Pacific during World War II. After he was discharged, John threw in with the fellows at Charles William Harvey Studios. Even rented a table there for a time, uh, though they never did charge. Uh, cha- they did never never did change the name of the studio. Uh, now, inspired by the quick money Kurtzman would make in between advertising assignments with one-page "Hey Look" gags for editor Stanley over at Timely, Severin worked up comic samples inked by Elder. In late 1947, he recalled when the artist. The writer-artist-editor team of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby at Crestwood Publications gave us our first job. It looks like uh, John's first published work appeared in All True Crime Comics number 33. That was a May 1948 cover date, which was a timely comic book, which was edited by Stan Lee himself. Uh, Historians feel that the job Severin refers to uh, may have been from Headline Comics number 32 that had a November 1948 cover date, which was published by Crestwood, uh, based on what he could remember of the story in uh, more recent years. Yeah, he was able to describe some of the story visually, and they think that's probably it. The one from Headline, yeah. As we know, you know, you can sometimes, you know, write and draw a story, and then it won't get published for years, or you you know, so it's, it's hard to say for sure, but... Somewhere, probably for definitely for Prize Comics, as it was the Joe Simon and uh, Jack Kirby imprint. Anyway, uh, John broke into EC Comics with the seven-page War Story in Two Fisted Tales, number nineteen, February nineteen fifty-one. Continuing to work in tandem with his friend Bill Elder as his inker, mostly on science fiction and war stories. And for the story we're about to read. It's very likely he inked himself because Bill Elder does another story in this book. <laughs> and uh, I do believe uh, artists still had only two hands back then. I'm not positive, but somebody let me Maybe, cor- yeah. correct us if we're wrong about that. Now, uh, this story is a fairly uninspired parody of the story of Robin Hood. Um, ballads about Robin Hood, who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, date back to the 15th century, with the earliest surviving text being from the song Robin Hood and the Monk, written after 1450. The first printed version is a guest of a Robin Hood, uh, which is spelled all crazily. Yeah. Circa 1500, a collection of separate stories that attempts to unite the episodes into a single continuous narrative. After this comes Robin Hood and the Potter, circa 1503. Uh, Robin Hood and the Monk is a thriller. Robin Hood and the Potter is decidedly more comical, which would kind of set the tone for the character 
going forward. Now, the plots of neither the monk nor the potter are included in, in the book A Guest of Robin Hood, showing how ubiquitous the character was in the ballad circuit. His first collection didn't even include two of his seminal works. You know, there's like mm. that. And, and from looking at it, there were like hundreds of ballads over a long time about Robin oh, Hood. Yeah. He, he was a loved guy. For sure. Uh, the character was also associated with May Day celebrations in the early 15th century, and Robin Hood, or more literally someone dressed as Robin Hood, presided over ceremonies and games as the May King. It is from the association with the May games that Robin's romantic attachment to Maid Marian apparently stems, based on 13th and 14th century May festivities in France. Fast forward to our modern take on Robin Hood, stemming largely from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, which was published by Scribner's in 1883. This book was the culmination of a 19th century effort to make Robin Hood a palatable story for children, as was the case for many fairy tales of that era, and would cast him as a staunch philanthropist. Yeah, there was he was just given to the poor out of the yep. beauty of his heart. Of his that. Heart, yep. Exactly. Uh, the 1938 film The Adventures of Robin Hood, directed by Hal B. Wallace and starring Errol Flynn as Robin Hood, cemented his look as a goatee-wearing debonair kind of dude forever. And of course, there's the 1973 Disney film Robin Hood, wherein all the characters are anthropomorphic woodland creatures, and which has probably contributed the most to the modern visual identities of Robin Hood and his merry men. The green outfit, uh, you know, the way Tunic, Fry yeah. the two, every everything, pretty much all the visual stuff, more or less comes from that Disney movie. Now, this Mad Magazine parody is about two minstrels, Sparky and Big John, uh, out and broke in Nottingham Forest. They come across Robin Hood, who initially challenges them to a duel, but falls off a log and into a river. Then Robin Hood's distracted by his merry men, who tell him uh, of a coach to rob. Sparky and Big John figure that they can just wait for mer the merry men to return, and then they'll get their share of the loot, since they are, you know... They're the poor, They're I guess. the poor that they're giving that loot to, right? <laughs> now, instead, the Merry Men return and steal everything Big John and Sparky own, including their tuppence. <laughs> really, any comedy in this bit is visual, so uh, you'll, you'll kind of just have to see it to get the uh, the comedy yeah. jokes. And, and, and yeah. in my opinion, at least, it's the least funny of all four stories in here. It's true. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's still... Has the, has some chuckles to it. Yeah, well, we, now, we never read the we didn't read the text pieces, so we, we that's true. Those sure. <laughs> might be more boring, <laughs> but we'll never ever know. Nope. <laughs> uh, now on to crime department. Lamont Lamont Shadow Skeety Boom Boom, wealthy young man about town, has long ago in the Orient learned a secret hypnotic power to cloud men's minds. His friend and companion Margot Payne is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible Shadow Skeety Boom Boom belongs. Margot calls him, for short, Shadow. And this one is art by Bill Elder. We've heard a lot about him in this episode. Now let's hear uh, from him or more directly about him. Born Wolf William Eisenberg on September 22nd, 1921 in the Bronx, New York City. Uh, Chris, if you were born with the first name Wolf, would you change it? Hmm, I don't know. That That's a powerful name. I, I gotta say, it's a lot to live yeah. up to, too, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> it it's is. true. You, you kind of gotta fill out a certain yeah. role when you do that. <laughs> uh, he was known in his teenage years as Wolfie, and of his upbringing, Will said, the people who had garbage were rich. They had something to throw out. He attended the High School of Music Art with Harvey Kurtzman, and you've met most of the rest of the people that went to the same school by now. <laughs> During World War II, he served as part of the 668th Engineer Company as part of the map-making team in advance of the invasion at Normandy. I want you to think about that job, folks. Mm. So he had to go before the troops showed up. 
sometime after returning home, he adopted the name Will Elder. He was uh, the William of that Charles William Harvey studio we keep talking about, and he did lots of comic book with the rest of the guys, often inking John Severin's pencils. Will continued that practice right on to into uh, EC Comics in 1951. And hey, here he is doing it now, doing a story himself for the fourth issue of Mad. Now, The Shadow. Now, The Shadow is the name of a collection of serialized dramas originally in 1930s pulp novels, and then onto radio and eventually film and comic strips and comic books. Created by Walter B. Gibson for the uh, Detective Story Hour radio program in 1930. In this initial version, The Shadow radio show merely told stories from Detective Story magazine. It was so popular that folks began asking vendors for The Shadow Detective magazine, which... Did not exist. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the, pu- the publisher of the actual pulp knew that this was something big. Uh, circulation manager Henry William Ralston hired William- Walter B. Gibson to write some stories featuring the shadow using the pen name of Maxwell Grant. The first story produced was The Living Shadow, and that was published April 1st, 1931. Gibson wrote 282 out of 325 tales over the next 20 years, a novel-length story twice a month. That's a lot of stories he's cranking there. A lot of words. A lot of words coming out of that guy. Uh, Now, in the radio drama, which debuted in 1937, the shadow was an invisible Avenger who had learned, while traveling through the Orient, the mysterious power to cloud men's minds so they could not see him. This was because it's kind of difficult to keep explaining that someone's hiding in an audio drama. And if you think about it, it's like you could see it'd be like, and the shadow is still peering from behind the crate while, you know, it's kind of difficult. So you just like make him invisible and then that's taken for granted. Uh, The radio drama created the character Margot Lane, a socialite who could see through the shadow's power. Uh, She was created because they felt the radio show needed more female voices. And uh, we definitely know what that's like. So the radio serial exploded in popularity after September 26, 1937, when a 22-year-old Orson Welles took over voicing the character, though he did that for only a year. We're going to do our best to cover this story uh, the best that we can. It's definitely second funniest, I think, in this issue after Super Duper Man. The problem is, though, that Bill Elder liked to add a lot of sight gags and puns into every panel, and there's no way we could find, much less describe all of them and keep this... As a cohesive story So for this we're going to stick to the narrative as best we can But if you want to get the full comedy of this uh, chapter you got to take a look at Mad Number 4 There's no other way to do it Sure So the story begins with a severe looking young blonde woman In an orange dress entering a seedy establishment Obvious criminals and sleazebags fill the joint One of them even has a knife in his back And he's playing poker (laughs) The woman announces herself to those in attendance I am Margot Payne, friend and companion. Just don't mess around with me, boys, because I'm the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow Skeety Boom Boom belongs. The room full of crooks draws their guns on Margot, and she's looking more distressed now. I'm looking for this guy, see? Completely invisible, see? Impossible to detect, see? With the naked eye, see? Any of you guys seen him? A thug goes, a friend and companion of the shadow is no friend of ours. Then, from off panel, <laughs> Who dat? Who dat who say who dat? Who dat who say nyahaha? From an empty space behind the bar, a voice comes from nowhere. And that nowhere spot is also drinking from a bottle of liquor somehow. <laughs> I am the shadow, short for shadow skitty boom boom. I am clouding your minds with the secret hypnotic power I learned in the Orient. 
The bar goes nuts looking for the shadow. One of the crooks says, Quick, somebody grab him! Yeah! <laughs> Stupid fools! Shivanunt! What? Stop That's acting funny. ridiculous! Schweinhunt! Schweinhunt! <laughs> Stop acting ridiculous! When I cloud their mind, nobody finds a shadow! Ouch! A big goon hits the talking invisible spot with the butt of his pistol and says, Die, found the shadow! The goon sits on the empty space, trapping the shadow. Good heavens! This man doesn't have a mind to cloud! You dirty coward! Hitting me from behind! Below the belt! Wint, you fight clean and honest like me! I dust you to throw away your gun and have a clean, good clean, clean good fight! Clean! I double dashed you! Okay. The goon tosses his gun to the side, and then the shadow zips from under him and picks it up. Uh, we have to assume. We can't see him, so. Yeah. Goon says, remember, no wrestling. Hey! And the shadow shoots the goon in the back, like, four times. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Who knows? Anyone around here know? I don't know. <laughs> the hoodlums shut the door to the bar in order to trap the shadow. Shut the door, boys. We'll lock the shadow in. Then the room is filled with gunfire. Ultimately, every criminal is dead and the walls are riddled <laughs> with bullet holes. But Margot Payne escaped okay, though. Yes, the shadow says from through the door, Open the door, boys! You locked the shadow out! Mm-hmm. So Margot throws open the door to hug the shadow, though she can't see him. She runs around for a bit trying to find him, even falling down a flight of stairs. Finally, in a coal bin, the two embrace. Oh, shadow skinny boom boom, when I feel your strong arms with your broad, powerful shoulders, I'm helpless. What do you say you quit clouding my mind for five minutes? And the shadow reveals himself, and he's that short, smuckish guy-looking guy from the cover. <laughs> Hello! Now that I see you, please cloud up my mind again. <laughs> the shadow, now invisible again, heads out with his companion, Margot Payne. Shad, here's why I've been looking for you. Dynamite under the hood of my car. Time bombs in the mail. I have reason to believe somebody's trying to do me bodily harm. Whoever it is, Shad, you'll cloud their minds, huh, Shad? You'll give them the old nya-ha-ha, won't you, Shad? Huh? Won't you? Huh? Huh? Hey, Shad, you there? A nearby woman squeals at having her butt pinched by an unseen attacker. Of course, it was the Shadow. Who pinched me? Shameless hussy, allowing my Shadow to pinch you. Where's that woman? Touched in the head. Margot storms off angrily. What she got that I ain't got? I'm the best! Margot turns around to give the woman another piece of her mind, just missing a piano that had plummeted to the street. The shadow, however, was not so lucky. See, shadow? See? See? Just now how bodily harm was tried? See? The woman says, definitely touched. Yes, Margot, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Margo and the Shadow head to a place called Cafeteria Bacteria for lunch. Delicious. Margo waits outside <laughs> while the Shadow brings out a heaping tray of food without paying. I guess that's invisibility has its privileges. Mm-hmm. Margo sits on a curb eating lunch and worrying about the assassination attempts against her. A horse-drawn cart of apples draws near. Margo worries that her enemies will try and poison her, and just as the Shadow swipes an apple from the cart and gives it to Margo for dessert. Feeling gratuitous, Mar- Margot gives the horse her apple, and when the, while the invisible shadow eats a slice of watermelon and spits the pits on the ground. So you gotta imagine a hovering piece of watermelon while pits are just manifesting out of nowhere is, yep. is the scene. <laughs> then the horse explodes, leaving only its horseshoes. 
Now Margot has been hitched up to the apple cart and the driver's whipping her to pull faster. The shadow runs with her, still eating watermelon and still spitting seeds. See? See, 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 see how they're trying to poison me? See, do something, Shad. Tell them how the weed of crime bears bitter fruit, Shad. Margo is then taken to a watering hole, a watering trough for horses, where she uh, reconsiders her anxiety. This is so, so surreal, this part. Like, what happened? She became a horse. <laughs> but then again, it could be my imagination. The piano, that poison food, it could have been a coincidence. Next thing I'll be imagining someone trying to stick me with a dagger. Phew, I'm thirsty. Margot dunks her head right into the trough, uh, just missing a knife thrown with a note attached. Uh, the knife strikes the shadow, who is still invisible, so it kind of just hovers there in the air. Uh, blood appears to form around it, but it turns out that the knife was actually just stuck in the shadow's bottle of ketchup. Yeah, you know, that keeps it there for just that reason. Sure. This note, it says, Margot Payne, if you wait in the house at the end of Main Street, you'll get a surprise that'll kill you. Of course, the Shadow and Margot head to the house at the end of Main Street, which is uh, an outhouse. Uh, a dynamite detonator is there, wires leading under the door. The Shadow is still somehow spitting watermelon seeds, though uh, the melon is long gone. There it is, the house at the end of Main Street. And look, Shed, a dynamite detonator connecting the, connected to wires leading to the house. They enter the house, which is massive, well-appointed mansion in the interior. Uh, a spiked chair with dynamite piled beneath it sits in the center of a spacious foyer. A sign reading, For Margot Payne, points to the chair. And look inside here, Shad. Sticks of dynamite piled all around the chair I'm supposed to wait in. Shad, do you think this could possibly be a trap? Quick, Margot, I have a plan. You go inside and sit on the dynamite sticks while I wait outside here and watch who presses the detonator. No, Lamont. I'm afraid you're liable to get killed. Come on now, girl. Really? I mean, <laughs> this is, some people, they kind of deserve what they get. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the shadow heads outside, and, uh, well, I mean, you can really probably guess about the next part. Don't worry about me, Margo. I'll wait outside as, ha the shadow. And the outhouse explodes with a va-va-va-boom. Nothing is left but a smoking crater. I am Lamont Shadow Skitty Boom Boom, wealthy young man about town. Long ago in the Orient, I learned a secret hypnotic power to cloud men's minds. My friend and companion, Margot Payne, is the only person who, who knew to whom my voice of the invisible shadow belongs. And the last panel pulls back to show that, yes, the shadow depressed the plunger on the dynamite detonator. And now nobody knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. <laughs> very good, very good. Excellent. So uh, that was a good time. We have read the entire think, issue of Mad Magazine. I think we're going to... part of that? Do you think part of the reason he did that is because he re she's related to Lois Payne? Possibly. I, 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 did, I do love the fact that... <laughs> although although to be, they, they both have two Payne names, but to be fair, their original names are both Lane also. So it's, it's like, true. You know, if, if we're just doing a one-to-one -one dictionary, you know, swap, it's Lane equals Payne, and we know that yeah, now. Control F, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I know. I wonder about the timing when these are written and stuff, but... Uh, sure, sure. This is, you know, this, this was a lot of fun. Uh, for me to go back to I, I oh, think yeah. First time I saw this must have been one of those Super special reprints And uh, I've never forgotten it So uh, <laughs> we're going to come back In just a few minutes and talk about More about Mad Magazine And more about Super Duper Man And Harvey Kurtzman After we cool our voices off a little
Hey Chris, do you happen to have a copy of the Uncanny X-Men number 288, May 1992 cover date? Gee, I don't know. Well, if you had the CLZ Collectors app, then you could find out at a glance. CLZ.com gave us access to try out their app. Uh, they're not sponsoring us or otherwise partnered with Cosmic Treadmill. We just want to share the good news about this collector's app. It's really awesome, really easy to use. Absolutely. You could track all of your comics in your collection. Also, they have other apps where you can track your movies, books, music, and games. You can use it on your phone or tablet, and then that syncs right with your web-based or your desktop app. There's free cloud storage so that it happens in real time. You don't need to, you know, connect a wire or do anything like that. It's uh, all right up front. Yeah, and uh, you can uh, use your uh, your device to scan the barcodes on your books to add them to your collection. And uh, the, the great thing about this is the barcode scan right side up, upside down, even through your bag. So you don't have to unbag your books as you add them to your collection. Nice. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard a lot of horror stories of people having to, uh, <laughs> you know, or people going through a lot of, like, almost like uh, setups trying to capture their For barcodes, sure. you know. <laughs> like, maybe if I stand super still and uh, with my hand up. Uh, you can also, once you do that, uh, you can automatically download all these issue details. Like you don't need to plug in all the uh, writers or the artists or the editors. The it's yeah. all, all the creatives are in there. Uh, the issue numbers, the volume, uh, it's really totally complete. And I was really super impressed with the uh, depth of titles. I tried to stump it. I went back to the golden age, the underground comics, tried to put in one shots, weird comics that I thought... It really had them all, and it was super impressive, the, the depth of the database. And then if you do stump it, you can add your comic title to the database, so you actually help everyone else and make the uh, CLZ.com database that much better. So we just want to share that with you guys. Uh, we really recommend it. If you're not already using it and you're looking for something to organize your collection easily, this could do it. Yes, for more information, check out clz.com. And if you go there, you can even try the app for free for one month on your Android or iOS device. Couldn't get any better than that. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead back to the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're going to talk some more about Mad Magazine. Uh, the first 23 issues of Mad were four-color comic books, often parodies of popular radio shows or movies, or sometimes aspects of American culture, or both. The initial nine issues were bi-monthly, and then the title went monthly. Mad Magazine was eventually a huge hit. Its sardonic take on middle-class America came to redefine what we considered humor. It's hard to believe, but before Mad, there really was not so much sarcasm. Oh, parody, yeah. Uh, or definitely not. Like, parody is almost something invented by Mad. That is definitely yeah. a stretch to say. But the idea of parodying uh, popular culture. In the culture, mainstream, yeah. Yeah, that's totally a Mad Magazine thing. And that's like, these are like the bedrocks of modern comedy. Uh, it spawned a dozen or more imitators over time, definitely more than a dozen. Oh, including, yeah. Including one put out by the same publisher, Panic. That was Al Feldstein's <laughs> Me Too humor magazine that he edited. And that debuted with a February, March 1954 cover date. About Super Duper Man specifically, in his book Comics, Manga, and Graphic Novels, A History of Graphic Narratives, Robert Peterson writes, In April 1953, Mad Number no. 4 included a parody of Superman, Super Duper Man, which originated a new formula that would significantly raise the popularity of the new magazine. Instead of broadly lampooning a genre of comics, Super Duper Man leveled its sights on a specific and recognizable comic character. Now, EC and National shared the same lawyer, who, after seeing 
King Super Duper Man advised Gaines to quit publishing parodies. While Gaines was weighing this advice, Kurtzman located a legal precedent that backed his and Mad's rights to publish. Gaines hired the author of that precedent to write a brief substantiating e- a brief substantiating EC's position, but the company's shared lawyer disagreed and sided with National over EC. Gaines consulted a third lawyer who advised Gaines to simply ignore the threat and continue publishing parody. National never filed suit, and this uh, legal precedent establishing the basis for Kurtzman's new editorial direction would become the bedrock of Mad's humor. This legal precedent, incidentally, is known as fair use and is one of the most quoted and <laughs> least understood laws in America. Oh, There's for a, lot sure. of, a lot of internet lawyers out there. Oh, who, uh, yeah, a lot of like people, yell lot of fair people use. on YouTube talking about fair yes. use all the time. <laughs> now, fair use provides for the legal uh, unlicensed citation or incorporation of copyrighted material as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code in another author's work considered using a four factor test. And those factors are the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for non-profit educational purposes. Number two, the nature of the copyrighted work being used. Number three, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. And number four, the effect of the use upon the potential market or value of the original copyrighted work. So those four things need to be considered. Yes. And now, it's not the answer. They still have no. to be judged after that. But <laughs> no, uh, fair use causes uh, cases distinguished between parodies, uh, which use the, a work in order to poke fun at or comment on the work itself and satire or comment on something else. Yeah. Courts are generally kinder to parodies than they are to satires, but in any case, it would rest on the consideration of the four factors that we had just listed. In 1968, Mad and DC Comics became part of the same corporate conglomerate, but this did not prevent the magazine from publishing spoofs of the Superman film series, including Super Duper Man, uh, that was Mad number 208, July 1979, Super Duper Man 2, which appeared in Mad 226, October 1981 cover, and Stuperman ZZZ, that's Mad <laughs> number 243, from December 1983. They really outdid themselves on that third one. They did. Uh, Alan Moore has cited Super Duper Man as an influence on his seminal work with Dave Gibbons, Watchmen, published by DC Comics in 1985-86. In a 2006 interview with Entertainment Weekly, Moore said, We wanted to take Super Duper Man 180 degrees, dramatic instead of comedic. In a 2003 interview, Moore said this about the art. I think that we probably settled upon the kind of Wally Wood Super Duper Man style. You know, super heroics, lots of details, heavy blacks, of a distinctive style. When asked in 2011 by 3AM Magazine about his influences on his early work writing Marvel Man, Moore explained, I'd still say that Harvey Kurtzman's Super Duper Man probably had the preliminary influence. And then in George Corey's Kimota, The Miracle Man Companion, published by Tomorrow's Publishing in 2001, Alan Moore goes into more detail. I remember being so knocked out by the Super Duper Man story that I immediately began thinking. I was 11, remember, so this would have been purely a comic strip for my own fun, but I thought maybe I could do a parody story about Marvel Man. This thing is fair game to my 11-year-old mind. I wanted to do a superhero parody story that was as funny as Super Duper Man, but I thought it would be better if I did it about an English superhero. 
So and that, who, it's, yeah, the, the, it's the bedrock inspiration for everything he's ever done. I didn't realize that. But. Wild, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, in 1956, Ernie Kovacs did a super clod sketch parody on the er- Ernie Kovacs show that had some similarities to Kurtzman's version. Uh, Kovacs was also a contributor to Mad Magazine. Don Glutt, early comic book fan, best known for writing the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, made and starred in a Super Duper Man fan film in 1963, which we'd really, really, really like to see, wouldn't we? Yeah, but I I looked for it high and low, folks, and could not find this thing digitized, so please help us out. Yeah, if you have it, find us. Uh, Now, uh, with that behind us, a little bit more on Kurtzman. Uh, Mad Magazine was a big hit, and Kurtzman maintained his strict control over every issue. Though it was neither a horror or crime comic, Mad was especially targeted by Dr. Frederick Wortham in his book Seduction of the Innocent and in the key father hearings that followed. Indeed, it was the inaugural issue of its sister publication, Panic, that lit the fuse on the whole thing. Uh, again, you can check out Weird Comics History episodes was a one through five, yep. where we discussed the comics code way, way back at the beginning of our archives. Yeah, it's easy to find, though, it's at the beginning, so just go there. <laughs> uh, Mad, like the rest of EC's books, was practically rendered defunct by the comics code, and the prevailing wisdom is that William Gaines changed it to black and white magazine uh, format in order to escape the strictures of the comics code authority. But that is untrue Bill Gaines, as we'll show later, was very reluctant to change So the story is that ever since Mad debuted in 1952 People on the know had been courting Harvey Kurtzman to collaborate with them And one of those people was future magazine magnate Hugh Hefner This was a year before the debut of Playboy Uh, Hugh approached Harvey with the offer to do a more adult-themed humor magazine for men At that time, however, Hugh had not much more to offer Harvey than in his enthusiasm In 1955, though, two years after the debut of Playboy, the situation was a lot different. Hefner was now one of the most powerful and wealthy figures in magazine publishing, and he still wanted Harvey Kurtzman's talent. So in order to keep him around, Bill Gaines agreed to change the format of Mad Magazine to follow an upscale layout that was entirely created by Harvey. And that layout is pretty much what Mad used from issue 24 until the most recent one, which, surprisingly, is issue 3 or 4, right? Yeah. Like rebooted the thing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> now, from 1952 to 2018, Mad published 550 regular issues, and then, as mentioned, they renumbered to issue number 1 in June uh, 2018. Who knows why, but whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, back to Harvey. Is, uh, ta- this, this tactic kept him around for a year, but the siren song of Hugh Hefner and uh, Hugh Hefner's wallet was calling. Uh, Harvey told William Gaines he would stay on for a 51% stake in the company. Gaines couldn't abide by this, so Harvey took off. Uh, Al Feldstein would take over as editor. Hugh set uh, Harvey up with a spacious office in his new Chicago building and reportedly a million-dollar budget. Kurtzman recruited old music and art classmates Al Jaffe and Arnold Roth and Bill Elder and also Jack Davis for Trump. Now, Wally Wood, this is uh, that magazine that uh, right. that came up from Playboy, yes, yeah. that's right. Now, uh, Wally Wood contributed to the first issue, but he would ultimately stick with uh, Mad Magazine. Right. When we're saying Trump, we're talking about a magazine from the late 50s. Yes. Nothing having to do with current events. Trump no. was a close. Well, we might use the hashtag, right? <laughs> if, if it gets us more tweets, maybe. <laughs> uh, Trump was a glossy 50-cent magazine that heavily satirized straight society and included frank references to sex and drug use. Number one came out January 57. This lasted two issues, though. Second one came out in March 1957. There are some conflicting stories as to why it was canned. Some say Kurtzman didn't meet deadlines, but the two issues we just talked about didn't miss their bi-monthly schedule. 
At the same time, Hefner had just overextended himself financially, purchasing the huge office space in Chicago that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, and the high cost of producing Trump gave him cold feet, plus Playboy itself wasn't cheap to produce. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, we do know that Kurtzman paid his staff abnormally well uh, compared to the rest of the industry. But Hefner and Kurtzman remained friendly, and Hugh let Harvey keep his office space for a year after that rent-free and repurposed much of the unpublished third issue for his new independently produced magazine we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, by the way, you can see a lot of this unpublished third issue in the Kitchen Sink Dark Horse reprint of Trump. And, Chris, you know that I hate to tell people how to spend their money. <laughs> so if you can go to the library or even flip through it, sure. if, if you can see this third issue, you really get an idea of Kurtzman's layout acumen is like mm. this is a man i feel that may have been created to design magazine pages but anyway that's uh for someone else to do and that that came out just a couple like a, within the past couple of years yes like that, uh, yeah that's I think it came recent thinking about last year early last yeah. year but something like that yeah so it, it should be out there available for sure not hard to get <laughs> Yeah, it's. I, I doubt it's uh, completely out of print yet. Uh, people may um, have defaced it, but that's they, they wouldn't know what it was, you know. But anyway, now uh, Al Jaffe, Arnold Roth, Harry Chester, Will Elder, and Kurtzman pulled together sixty-five hundred dollars to try to pick up where Trump left off. Uh, though each contributed a different amount of money, they were equal partners in Humbug Incorporated, though clearly Harvey Kurtzman was in charge, at, at least creatively. creatively. Uh, Jack Davis did work for Humbug, but he was not a partner. Uh, the money breakdown is as follows. Uh, there was $2,500 from Arnold Roth, $1,500 from Al Jaffe, $1,000 from Bill Elder, $1,000 from Harvey Kurtzman, and $500 from Harry Chester. Humbug was more politically bent than Mad or Trump, uh, printed at the same trim size as comic books, roughly six and five-eighths by ten and an eighth. Uh, it had a four-color cover, but a two-color interior, uh, black and a different highlight color, depending upon the issue. It sold for 15 cents, while four-color comic books sold on the same stands for just a dime. Which was really Harvey's problem all the time, was uh, the cover price just could not stack up. Uh, so that magazine did not do well, Humbug, uh, despite a nine-page write-up in a 1957 Playboy and changing the format to standard magazine trim with issue number 10, it folded in issue 11, October 1958, cover date, which went 32 to 48 pages to boot. Uh, in 1959, Ballantine Books was looking for something to replace its successful line of mad mass-market paperback reprints after Gaines had taken them to another publisher. Ballantyne had earlier published the Humbug Digest in the same format, though it fared pretty poorly on the market. Kurtzman proposed a book of original material designed for the format, which Ian Ballantyne accepted on faith out of respect for Kurtzman. The book was Harvey, Kurtzman Jungle, Harvey Kurtzman's Jungle Book, and that was the first mass-market paperback of original comics content in the United States. To Kurtzman biographer Dennis Kitchen, this was a precursor to the graphic novel, but... Of course, we know the official Cosmic Treadmill position is that it was It Rhymes with Lust <laughs> by Leslie Waller, Arnold Drake, and Matt Baker from 1950, but that's, you know, the conjecture right there. Yes. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman co-published Help, uh, with exclamation point, with Warren Magazine Publishers from 1960 to 1965. Co-published, of course, so Harvey could retain complete creative control. Uh, Help was an inexpensively produced black and white humor magazine that relied heavily on making fumetti. That would be American fumetti, not Italian fumetti, which is just a word for comics. Uh, this would be from stock photographs and pictures taken in-house. 
These fumetti would feature various folks known and unknown, including John Cleese, Woody Allen, and Orson Bean. Kurtzman hired a lot of the same fellows we know from Mad and Beyond, Al Jaffe, Jack David, Bill Elder, etc., to work on help. Number one debuted with an August 1960 cover date. Uh, Terry Gilliam was an assistant for Kurtzman and, in fact, met John Cleese at Help, which would ultimately lead to their collaborating on Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, Gloria Steinem, uh, later of Ms. Magazine, was also an assistant. Help's most famous bit starred Kurtzman's character Goodman Beaver in Goodman Goes Playboy. That was in the February 1962 issue. The story satirized Hugh Hefner and his lifestyle while parodying Archie comics in a much more risque way than the previous Starchy parody in Mad No. 14, that was June 1954 cover date. Archie's publishers sued, and Warren agreed to settle out of court rather than risk an expensive lawsuit. The actual target of the strip had, been, had however, been Hugh Hefner, who loved it. Kurtzman began working for Hefner again soon after. Help was Kurtzman's most successful venture, primarily because he made it for Peanuts. Uh, he'd call in favors from high-profile friends for a submission or two uh, to a fear in, in Fumetti, uh, have a few pages by one or two of the standard stable, and then fill in the rest with unknown and unproven talent. Future underground comic superstars Robert Crumb, Gilbert Shelton, Spain Rodriguez, Skip Williamson, and Jay Lynch would see their first work published in Help magazine. Still, Help's sales were not great, and frequent clashes with publisher James Warren would lead to it quietly ending with issue 26, that September 1965 cover date. That was okay, though, because Kurtzman had other irons in the fire. Yeah, Kurtzman and Elder reunited with Hugh Hefner and produced the tremendously popular Little Annie Fanny cartoon for Playboy, running intermittently from 1962 to 1988. Bollywood was also known to assist on this comic from time to time. It's, of course, a hyper-sexualized parody of Little Orphan Annie, and uh, that pretty much says everything you need to know. <laughs> Harvey co-scripted the stop-motion animated film Mad Monster Party, question mark, uh, 1967, directed by Jules Bass, produced by Rankin Bass Productions. He got the job through, yeah, the uh, pretty well-known animators. Yeah. Yeah. He got the job through Jack Davis, who did character designs for the movie. Kurtzman wrote, co-directed, and designed several short animated pieces for Sesame Street in 1969. In early 1972, Stanley offered Kurtzman a senior position at Marvel Comics and proposed another Mad-like magazine. That would have been right when Stanley had vacated his yeah. C position, so I wonder what that if that was the would senior been, position, yeah. but we don't know. But because Harvey turned him down, unwilling to return to comics after having been away for so long. Stan went ahead with the idea and debuted Crazy Magazine in 1973. Harvey also turned down an offer to write for National Lampoon Magazine, whose staff lionized him, but he felt out of touch with their brand of humor. Kurtzman taught satirical cartooning at the School of Visual Arts from 1973 to 1990 after being pushed into it by Will Eisner. When the school refused to publish his students' work, Kurtzman had them published in an ad-supported, student-produced anthology that came to be called Cartoons, with a T with a U-N-Z, with an umlaut, you have to see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, the Cartoons ran for 15 years. In the 1970s, Harvey Kurtzman gained wider recognition after being heralded by respected cartoonists like Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman. Glenn Bray published the illustrated hit, Har sorry, the Illustrated Harvey Kurtzman Index in 1976, and that cataloged everything he'd ever done to that point. Uh, mm. 
He also found he had a following in Europe. In 1973, the European Academy of Comic Book Art awarded him its Lifetime Achievement Award for 1972. How about that? Yeah. Now, in the, 1980s, the, in the 1980s were a flurry of reprints of Harvey Kurtzman's work, uh, largely handled by Kitchen Sink Press, as well as other opportunities for Harvey to lend his expertise to humor publications and productions. In 1982, Harvey was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and suddenly his focus shifted to making money. For once. Uh, he did have a wife and a young daughter, after all. Uh, he had three other kids, incidentally, uh, two other daughters and a son. Uh, Harvey would reconcile with Bill Gaines almost immediately after Al Feldstein retired in 1984. Uh, eh, we're not saying there's a connection there. It's just an awfully convenient. Awfully pause. convenient, that, yeah. <laughs> the, the timing, hmm. Now, uh, he and Bill Elder collaborated on several pieces for Mad Magazine over the next three years. That would begin with issue number 258, October 1985 cover date. The comic industry's Harvey Award was named in his honor in 1988. Yeah, while well, he was still alive, so that was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, being that their son was diagnosed with low-functioning autism, Harvey and his wife volunteered their time to special needs children in their local area. In 1986, they began an annual charity auction, raising money by selling the artwork of, a car- of cartoonists for the Association for Mentally Ill Children of Westchester. He published a history of comics called From Arg to Zap, that's Simon and Schuster, 1991, and a bizarre humor anthology in the vein of Jungle Book called Harvey Kurtzman's Strange Adventures, published by Marvel's creator-owned imprint Epic in 1990. Uh, for that, Harvey did have some all-star collaborators, uh, Sergio Aragones, Thomas Bunk, Robert Crumb, Sarah Downs, Rick Geary, Dave Gibbons, Mobius, William Stout, and an introduction by Art Spiegelman. But Harvey Kurtzman passed away February 21st, 1993, of liver cancer in Mount Vernon, New York. Mm-hmm. Back to Mad Magazine. We didn't forget that this is still about Mad Magazine. <laughs> uh, now, Harvey Kurtzman left Mad Magazine after issue 28. That was July 1956, cover date. Though issues 29 and 30 had still been largely largely laid out by him. So I still had his touch on them. On them. Uh, before that, Kurtzman introduced a certain gap-toothed fellow who never had anxiety. Yeah, it's uh, Alfred E. Newman. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman first spotted the image of Alfred E. Newman on a postcard pinned to the office bulletin board of Ballantine book editor Bernard Shear Cliff. It was a face that didn't have a care in the world except mischief, would recall Kurtzman. In uh, November 1954, Newman made his mad debut on the front cover of Ballantine's The Mad Reader. This is a paperback collection of reprints from the first two years of the magazine. The character's first appearance in the magazine itself was on the cover of Mad 21. That was March 1955 cover date, in a tiny image as part of a mock advertisement. The cover looks like a newspaper coupon circular. A rubber mask bearing Alfred's likeness with idiot written underneath is being offered for $1.29. Uh, beginning with issue 24 and then through to issue number 30, covers had an illustrated border and Newman's face was at the top center of it, above the magazine's logo, What Me Worry, written underneath his head. Uh, it was originally actually, What? Question mark? Me Worry? Question mark? But I thought they changed it to What, comma, Me Worry? Question mark. Yeah. After Mad Number 30, the last issue on which Harvey Kurtzman had influence, Al Felstein turned this idiot into an icon. He put an ad in the New York Times for a professional portrait artist to provide the definitive Alfred E. Newman portrait, which became the essential look for his next six decades. The artist's name was Norman Mingo. 
Mingo's defining portrait was used on the cover of Mad Number no. 30, November 1956 cover date, as a supposed write-in candidate for the presidency. Mingo's original cover art featuring this official portrait of Newman sold at auction for $203,000, uh, $150,000. Some reason I couldn't read a number for a second there, but I, I figured it out. <laughs> Mingo painted seven more covers through 1957 and later returned to become the magazine's signature cover artist throughout the 1960s and 1970s. He produced 97 Mad covers in total and also illustrated dozens of additional cover images for Mad's many reprints. Now, Newman has appeared in one form or another on the cover of nearly every issue of Mad and its spin-offs since that issue and continuing to the present day with a small number of exceptions, some of which are Mad number 166. This was April 1964 cover date, which was just a hand giving the middle finger and had text that reads, The number one ech magazine. Uh, many retailers wouldn't carry this one. Uh, yeah. I wonder why. I wonder why, um, yeah. <laughs> Also, we have Mad number 195, December 1977 cover date. This has a message in text on the front. It says, Psst, keep this issue out of the hands of your parents. Make them buy their own copy. Burp, burp. Uh-huh. Then we have Mad number 233, September 1982. Uh, Alfred is replaced by a toothy Pac-Man. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Now, the origins of this character are much older than Mad Magazine, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about him again another time, and uh, we'll tell you all about it then. Yeah, there's a lot, there's, there's actually a lot more to unpack with him, but we got to get back to Mad Magazine. Now, mm-hmm. when Kurtzman left Gaines' company, he lured away almost all the primary contributors to Mad except for Wally Wood, leaving Al Feldstein to build a new stable of contributors. His first issue as editor coincided with the debut of Don Martin. That's the guy that has the flappy feet, you know, very, very <laughs> well-known. Uh, crucial longtime contributors such as prolific writer Frank Jacobs and star characterist, character, character artist uh, Mort Drucker quickly followed. Early on, Feldstein also relied on celebrity guest con- contributions to attract attention and fill pages. By the early 1960s, working with art director John Putnam and such notables as Antonio Prohias, Al Jaffe, and Dave Berg doing regular work, Feldstein had established a team that was to be a commercial success for decades. Many of Feldstein's detractors derided his version of Mad for being less satiristic and aimed at a younger audience. But that strategy paid off because the magazine was a publishing and merchandising fixture by the 1960s, and circulation peaked at 2.4 million in 1974. Yeah, the highest-selling individual issue was Mad Number 161, had a September 1973 cover date, and that one sold over 2.4 million copies. This issue contains a parody of the film The Poseidon Adventure with The Poopside Down Adventure, (laughs) and... uh, the cover shows what are presumably Alfred E. Newman's sneakered feet uh, sticking through a lifesaver with an SS Poseidon printed on it and the silhouette of a ship sinking in the background. In its earliest incarnation, new issues of the magazine appeared erratically between four and seven times a year. By the end of 1958, Mad had settled on an unusual eight times a year schedule, which lasted almost four decades. Gaines insisted that this was necessary in order to maintain Mad's quality. Issues would go on sale seven to nine weeks before the start of the month uh, listed on the cover. Uh, when Feldstein retired in 1984, he was replaced by the team of Nick Meglin and John Ficara, who co-edited Mad for the next two decades. 
Following Meglin's retirement in 2004, Fakara continued as executive editor for 13 more years until the publishing company announced in June 2017 that Mad was going to relocate to Burbank, California. Uh, Bill Morrison would succeed him in January of this year, 2018. Yep, and that's uh, he's the guy uh, running it right Currently. now. Uh, Gaines sold his company in the early 1960s to the Kinney Parton Company, which also acquired National Periodicals and Warner Brothers by the end of that decade. Mad was folded into DC Comics for production purchases, purposes, which, as we know, was in turn folded into Warner Brothers for some god-awful reason. <laughs> Though technically an employee for 30 years, Gaines was named a Kinney board member and was largely permitted to run Mad as he pleased. Gaines remained as publisher until the day he died and served as a buffer between the magazine and its corporate owners. In turn, he largely stayed out of the magazine's production, often viewing content just before the issue was shipped to the printer. He said, My staff and contributors create the magazine. What I create is the atmosphere. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman stated that had he stayed with Mad, he would have pressured Bill Gaines to take on advertising, as Al Felstein tried to do for, uh, for decades without success. Um, he never did, though it would have offset their production costs tremendously. As we mentioned earlier, that Gaines was stubborn, and his stubbornness was the main reason we don't think he would have changed Mad's format to defy the comics code, changing it from a uh, comic format to the magazine format. Right. Uh, he was more likely to just junk the whole venture altogether or keep trying to succeed under the strictures of the code, which he did for a, for a brief time. Yeah. Uh, he was an unorthodox businessman, to say the very least. When agreeing to contracts, Gaines insisted on striking the standard clause prescribing that both parties must settle disputes in a reasonable manner, saying that he could never promise to be reasonable, which, uh, <laughs> hey, fair enough. Fair enough. It'd be up front right there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, still, Gaines was devoted to his staff, and he fostered an environment of comedy and loyalty. Gaines ran yearly mad trips and paid for the magazine's staff and its steadiest contributors to fly to an international locale. The first vacation was to Haiti, uh, set the tone there, uh, dis discovering that Mad had a grand total of one Haitian subscriber— Gaines arranged to have the group driven to that person's house. How about that? Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> awesome. There, surrounded by the magazine's editors, artists, and writers, Gaines, form Gaines formally presented the bewildered subscriber with a renewal card. <laughs> what a nut. Uh, when the man's neighbor also bought a subscription, Gaines declared the trip to be a financial success because the magazine had, <laughs> in all honesty, doubled its Haitian circulation. There you go, 200%. <laughs> Now, the trips would become more elaborate, a more elaborate annual event, and the staff would eventually visit six of the world's continents. Yeah, there were cruises and stuff. There, there's a lot of stories about this, and if we ever dip back into Mad, maybe we'll tell some yeah, more we'll of these uh, funny things. Yeah, go deeper, things. sure. Uh, there are two stories, though, that leap to mind that tell of Gaines' stubbornness as a publisher. One was when the company had been bought by Kinney. He was told of a bonus incentive program tied to his sales. He already qualified. Bill just had to merely give them the go-ahead. He rejected the offer on the grounds that it would imply that he wasn't doing the best possible job already. Or, read another way, he didn't want his performance subject to additional review, whether it was good or not. You know, I, I think that probably is more close to the truth. Probably. Uh, the other one uh, must have happened around the same time. Uh, Gaines was offered a new office space uptown in a much larger, nicer building than the one at 485 Madison Avenue. He replied something to the effect of a child not wanting to live forever in their parents' home. Doubtlessly having to shift the jam-packed office was probably a daunting prospect in itself. 
Longtime Mad editor Nick Meglin called Gaines a living contradiction in 2011, saying he was singularly the cheapest man in the world and the most generous. Meglin described his experience of asking Gaines for a raise of $3 a week. After rejecting the request, the publisher then treated Meglin to an expensive dinner at one of New York's best restaurants. Meglin recalled, The check came, and I said, That's the whole raise. And Bill said, I like good conversation and good food. I don't enjoy giving raises. Uh, Bill Gaines would pass away on June 3rd, 1992, of complications related to uh, not being a super healthy sort of fellow. Basically, yeah. Uh, he, we, yeah. Well, he wasn't that young, but he could, probably could have lived a little longer. But Probably. There it is. Uh, following Gaines's death, MAD became more ingrained within the Time Warner corporate structure. Eventually, the magazine abandoned its longtime home at 485 Madison Avenue, and in the mid-'90s, it moved into DC Comics's offices at, at 1700 Broadway. Uh, MAD then began producing additional issues until it reached a traditional monthly schedule with its January 1997 issue. In 2001, the magazine broke its long-standing taboo and began running paid advertising, which allowed for the introduction of color printing and improved paper stock. With its 500th issue, that was June 2009 cover, amid company-wide cutbacks at Time Warner, the magazine temporarily regressed to a quarterly publication before settling to six issues per year in 2010. MAD ended its 65-year run in Manhattan at the end of 2017 when its offices relocated to DC Entertainment Headquarters out in Burbank, California. And then finally, we want to talk about the MAD logo, which is a very, very well-recognized logo, I think, sure. by pretty much everybody. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman designed two logos for MAD magazine. The first applied to the initial for 24 issues, and the second was used thereafter. Uh, the MAD logos remain largely unchanged since then, 1955, save for the decision to italicize the lettering beginning in 1997. For many years, the mysterious letters IND appeared in a small type within the logo between the M and the A. Uh, this used to drive me nuts, Chris. Did you ever, did you ever notice this? I was, <laughs> I saw it, yeah. Uh, some fans speculated, uh, myself to myself all the time, the meaning of the M hyphen IND message. Uh, but the truth is more simple. From 1957 on, the magazine was handled by independent news distribution. That was just the way they marked it. IND, yeah. So uh, that was all it was. Today, with the renumbering, Mad seems to have reverted to a logo more like the original one, designed by Kurtzman, kind of a sharper, flat logo. Yeah, uh, that's what seems to be going on, but I cannot claim to be totally up on what's happening with Mad Magazine at the moment. But uh, I was a huge, a huge collector of Mad as a kid. Uh, I'm not sure if you were. I, I think you were. I was not. You had to be yeah. aware of it, though. I mean, was, oh, of course. You oh, certainly. You I'm exist. sure I had a few issues. Yeah, you, you, because they they were just around. But I I, I it, never. Uh, it was never a dedicated effort to uh, to grab them or collect them. There was just really no way. If you lived in America in like the you know the probably the 60s through the 80s, I can't see how you would. You miss knew it. Alfred E. Newman. You yeah. knew who this guy was, you know, and uh, yeah, that was it was a huge thing for me as a kid, going I'm, on vacation, pick up the super specials and all that stuff. Because they even had that sketch comedy show uh, that came uh, out. In the in, 90s. In the 90s, yeah. Which, uh, upon re-review, is not totally horrible. It's only a little bit horrible. <laughs> so uh, maybe you want to go back and look look at that, you know? That was, <laughs> at least the spy versus spy section. That, that was all right. There were, there were, some, there were some moments on it. But, uh, yeah, that was a weird time in American television for sure. I'll tell you what. Uh, but, yeah, I had, a, I had a great time with this one. If, oh, yeah. Uh, anybody else wants to write in with their memories of MAD or their thoughts, their MAD thoughts or... Anything else that we've talked about or, you know, just want to 
pitch a mad story or something, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon. If you like what we're doing, you want to chip us, give us a couple of bucks, head on over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. Yeah, what did what did Captain Marvel say? Lettuce, shekels. Yeah, give us some shekels. <laughs> Don't raise me. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. You can also find us on Instagram at cosmic And same thing over at Twitter at cosmic I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out our weekly writings on our recent DC offerings over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. Also, uh, you're doing your uh, retro stuff there uh, yep. uh, regularly. So I've, I've been yeah. lax the last couple of weeks, but you will see a new one this Tuesday, the Lois Lane Review. There so, you go. Uh, yeah, over there, WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you see Chris's daily writings on a different DC comic Every single day now, going on about 55 years at uh, at least. Yeah. Chris is on infiniteearth.com. You got to go check that out if you haven't seen it. Uh, you really got to make this part of your routine. I think I like to kind of round. <laughs> I like to kind of round them up on a Saturday, and that's when I tend to go through a week's worth of uh, of offerings and check them out. Uh, it's great. It breaks down the whole thing. You get panels from the book. You get ads. It's the next best thing to reading a comic book. You got to check that out. Mm-hmm, thank you. And uh, we also have the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. You'll be able to find our show notes there, all of our images, all of our links, uh, and also our chronological listing of all of the programming here at the Chris and Reggie channel. I think every show, uh, every free show, has its own uh, dedicated page now with that's up to date, believe right. it or not. So, yeah. <laughs> Which we, uh, you know, it might not be when you're listening to this episode, but when you when you get around to listening to it. But you know, we, there you are. But uh, yeah, Chris is over there doing the uh, the work, so it's it's it, <laughs> that's the place to go. And if while you're over at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, maybe go check out the 80 t- 80s uh banner. We've partnered with them to uh, offer some uh, discounts for the holiday season or some T-shirts and. Uh, if you're interested in what they all have to offer, if you use that banner, you help us out and you help yourself out and everybody wins. Absolutely. You can also check out our show sponsor over at clz.com. That is that app where you can put all your collections. If you collect comics, records, movies, anything you want, it'll be a nice, handy, easy-to-find spot for you to see what you have. Yeah, so we're really glad uh, to have their support. But uh, I think that's all we got for them this week, Chris. Got anything else for them? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill super duper ishingly. See ya. Super-duper.